The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It is Wednesday, May the 29th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In the studio with me today are our politics reporter, Jennifer Bray, looking a bit tired after how many days down at the count, Jennifer? I've lost count of the count. Okay. Our political correspondent, Harry McGee. I'm not too tired this morning. Merely slightly tired, but not too bad. And how are you, Fintan? Because you're back on this side of the Atlantic uh, after yeah, your, yeah, your, your regular I'm, sojourn on, on I'm, Princeton. I'm tired for no, um, no, no, no respectable journalistic reasons. Just <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so in we're, the air. So we're all just yeah. generally, generally yeah. tired. And it is five days on now from last Friday's local European and referendum votes. Although counting is still continuing in Midlands, Northwest and South constituencies. I, I hope that we're going to get a broader perspective today, though, on some of the issues which these elections have raised. And in a little while, we're going to discuss what the results might might mean for the overall national political dynamic over the next year or more and who the potential kingmakers might be after the next general election and also perhaps what it all means for Brexit, which rumbles on regardless. Um, but first, I, I wanted to return to a subject which we briefly touched upon on Monday's podcast, but which I think deserves a little more serious consideration. The exit poll commissioned by RT and TG Cahar and published on the night of the vote proved to be significantly wrong on a number of key points, including the overall size of the green vote, the margin in the referendum and the relative position of candidates in the Midlands Northwest constituency. In all of those cases, the difference between the poll and the actual result was significantly outside the margin of error. Uh, now, I've, um, Fintan, I've been a disagree- disagreeing with some people about how important this is, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that these exit polls in particular, as separate from the polls com- uh, held during the campaign, they very much drive coverage in Ireland over the course of two full days as we wait for the actual results to come in. And so they have a real impact in the way that we think about these things. I know you've just come back from the States and we've seen an example with the Mueller report of about how the setting of an agenda in the first few days or the first few weeks can really influence then, then what follows. So I think we should be more concerned about this than people have suggested. I, I, I strongly agree with you, you know, and, and it is a particular problem in Ireland because we have a very slow counting process. In a lot of countries, it doesn't matter that much, right? So you get the exit poll at, at 10 o'clock and then you have the full results, you know, two hours later sure. or the following morning, you know. So so the exit poll is just a kind of a, you know, news headline snapshot, but it's very quickly overtaken by the actual results. And that's not the case here, you know, particularly with the European elections where, where you know, we've, we, you know, we're still in the process. Um, and I think, I think you're absolutely right to be concerned. You know, the exit poll is essentially a form of journalism. You know, that's, that's what it does. And it, it is crucial to journalism that it, it has some standards of accountability and accuracy. Uh, everybody understands that polls are not scientific entirely, that there's always margins of error. And I think, you know, that was stressed. But, but the, the, the errors that you were highlighting are, are way outside the margins of error, you know. And, and they absolutely did set an agenda. And there are people who will still believe because they won't pay, they'll, get, they'll get bored and they'll move on. <laughs> you know, the, the story that will be in a lot of people's heads will be the story as told by the exit polls rather than the final story in terms of the outcome of the European elections. 
Um, and and that yeah, we absolutely should be concerned about and that. I think another reason to be concerned, Harry, is I mean, a lot of, some people have said to me, well, you know, that these polls are published after after the vote has taken place, so they don't have any impact on how actually people vote in in this particular election. But they do have an impact on how people think about stories. Well, and they, you can imagine a situation. So in in most cases, they didn't actually have a material difference in terms of who was actually elected or what happened in the referendum with the arguable exception of, of Midlands Northwest where Saoirse McHugh was projected perhaps to have a, a much better chance of, of becoming elected than she did. But if you had a really tight election, if you had a Brexit type election or a Trump type election or many of the other, you know, 50-50 or close to 50-50 type results, they, they, they could be really uh, damaging. And also, I mean, Finton's point about it being journalism, they they also undermine trust in journalism, which is in kind of trouble already, isn't it? Well, well several referendums in Britain have created that kind of crisis where they've undermined uh, people's trust in the validity and accuracy of polls and the most recent one was in relation to the Scottish uh, independence referendum where pollsters got it very badly wrong and they carried out a post-facto investigation of that that found uh, some startling uh, findings. Number one in relation to methodology when Gallup started in the 1930s and 40s there was massive buy-in in terms of community and response. So every demographic they went to, geogra- every geographic area, every demographic area, they got a very high response. But as time has gone on, they found it more difficult uh, to get people to respond. So uh, typically in America, uh, when pollsters go out, they'll only get a response rate of about 10% of the 100% sample they seek. So they have to go second and a third time. But very often what happens is that they only get up to 30 or 40 percent. So a lot of the calculations that are done then are are done by guesswork. I mean, they say algorithms and formulae and stuff, but they're guessing how a particular uh, cohort uh, will respond to a particular question or to a particular party. And very often they've got it wrong and spectacularly wrong in the States. And what they've tended to do then is they have the poll of polls where they kind of group them all together as if this gives it some kind of validity. I'm not quite sure about that, even though I wouldn't be in a position uh, to, pr- to pronounce about it one way or the other. But to me, it just sounds like, um, to use the technical term, protecting your ass, you know, uh, to be to be honest with it. And then th- the third thing that that's striking about um, uh, opinion polls, um, and it's, it's an example here, um, the Referendum Commission uh, here um, used to carry out uh, 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 opinion polls after the referendum result was in, asking people about why they voted, the reasons they voted yes or no in a particular referendum. And in several uh, occasions, the actual opinion poll reversed the result of the actual referendum. People told porkies about the way they had voted. Or, not forgot, out of any, or forgot, maybe. Or forgot, not out of any bad intention, but I think people like to be seen to be backing a winner or like to be seen to be saying the right thing to, to, to a pollster, asking them lots of random questions about things that they have no high opinion about. And to me, that always was a very good illustration of the caution that one must adopt when approaching uh, opinion polls. And we always say, we say margin of error and caveats. And yeah, people always say that and then they launch into, you know, in-depth and analysis of those you know, if these I mean, numbers were To be honest, gospel. I mean, um, if you look at the coverage uh, since the European and local elections and this green wave thing, pe- people, journalists all over the country, with a few exceptions, went a- along with the phenomenon that the Greens were on an inexorable rise in this election. And when the actual count results came out, that wasn't quite the case. They did extraordinarily well. But their national vote is only 5.6 or 5.7 percent, which isn't stratospheric. And the opinion poll very uh, significantly overestimated the actual outturn 
uh, there was for green candidates in the European elections. Yes, uh, Michael Marsh, um, Jennifer, has a very, very interesting kind of blog post on the RT website. He's he's the sort of the the uh, the grand man of yeah. grand old man of Irish and polling and these statistics <laughs> of, all, of of all those kinds of things. And he goes into it in some detail. And you know, evidence is some of the reasons why the the sampling may not be fully reflective of the population. And uh, it, it's not so much that people are shy to admit that they voted for certain parties or voted certain ways. That certain people seem more likely or more enthusiastic about answering. So that therefore you need to factor that in. And particularly with this election, there, there's 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 significant geographic issues which could be quite tricky and then as Harry mentioned it was a multiple election so people could confuse whether they'd voted green in the locals and also voted green in the Europeans because they because as we know that the vote was higher for the for the greens in the in the Europeans and I also think that you know media companies are are sometimes reluctant to be throwing stones around in glass houses and the RT uh, you know RT conducted this exit poll but the Irish Times has conducted exit polls in the past as well and we sort of think our own reputation is at stake but you put all that together and I just feel that the public is not being well served by the by the media in this regard. Probably not and I think one of the issues, one of the major issues with the exit poll is that it drives the news agenda for the following days and if they're very far out you're probably missing some key trends and if you look back at your coverage then for the previous days and see that it was off, obviously that is not a good place to be in and I think Harry touched on a really interesting point about this idea of honesty. I mean you'd have to ask yourself about the demographics of the party are Fianna Fáil voters more likely to be a little bit older? Therefore, when they come out of the polling station, would they have that much more disregard for a pollster? Um, you know, did family, you know, would you have a parent with their kid coming out of a polling station saying they voted green because they were under pressure from their kid? Because that's the, you know, that's that's the, the young green vote. And uh, maybe telling porkies. So there is that element of, are the public being honest to the pollsters? Then you have obviously the issues that um, I think Michael Marsh went into in terms of the sampling. You know, it's a small, small sample size when you think about the size of the country and the amount of people who voted. Um, so, yeah, there's a couple of things. The other thing I would say is that there were a huge number of spoiled votes. Um, 40,000, it was 40,000. Yeah. Uh, in Ireland South, mm. yeah, and 15,000 in the Dublin constituency. You would have to wonder how much that contributed towards that margin of error. The confusion in the exit poll. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm. I mean, and you know that we have, basically what happened is that people went in and they had their local sheet and they had their European sheet and they're putting one, two, three on the local and four, five, six on the European. Now, previously back in the day, that would have been accepted on European sheet as your 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 highest number is your first preference. But we had the Listole case um, taken a couple of years ago and that's kind of all up in the air now. That's something that really needs to be sorted. I mean, I was in the RDS and watching one of the Fianna Fáil strategists looking at the spoiled papers, he was distraught. He was really kind of saying saying to me, you know, this is a huge number of votes. This could make a huge difference to a candidate. So yeah. I think that in terms of an exit poll, there are a couple of things that need to be looked at. You can't do anything about the honesty of people talking to pollsters. Yeah. You know, but you can't do something about sample size and you can't do something about As Jennifer votes. was pointing out, they weren't spoiling their votes kind of going in singing Anarchy in the UK by yeah. the Sex Pistols. They, they, were, they were spoiling their votes because they didn't understand. Mm. Or they just, they, they, somebody needs to explain to people how to vote. And it sounds very basic to us who are working in it every day. But yeah. for people who own, owe only interface... Uh, with politics is, is and, as election time. And I want time, to come to that subject in a minute very, because very there difficult. were a number of problems, actually electoral problems, which, which we might come to in a minute. But, but just on this issue, finally, maybe uh, Finton. The other thing that strikes me is that um, Patrick Collins, who's our 
uh, correspondent in Sydney had a piece in the newspaper on Monday about the Australian election where the result was a shock to everybody including I think the winning party in that the the conservative uh, the conservatives well, I think they're called the liberals in the in, in in Australia they won the election against all the evidence in the polls so clearly again there was a sampling error there but I wonder as well is there and this is another thing which media can be uncomfortable to talk about too is there when certain results are coming in or when certain uh, polls are telling a certain story that is perhaps, you know, um, a story that, that large parts of the media are happy with. You know, I'd make no bones about it. We had a couple of um, environmental activists in last week and I thought that they made a very powerful argument for actions that needed to be taken in relation to in relation to the climate crisis. Uh, you're a columnist, so you're allowed to wear your heart and your sleeve about these things and we know, we know where you stand. And, you know, most evidence shows that there is a sympathy for these kind of political positions. So then when they're overrepresented in the polls, people don't actually get that upset about it or the media doesn't interrogate it maybe as much as it Yeah, it's a, it's a very fair point. And, you know, of course, this is much more serious. Like what happens in Australia, for example, is much more serious than the exit poll question here because uh, that was the polls running up to the election and shaping the election campaign itself. Uh, whereas the exit poll, although it is serious, you know, it, it doesn't actually affect how people voted. And what happens in, in the Australian case, you know, you could very well argue that the polls then influence the behaviour of the parties in the campaign. I mean, if you're the Labour Party in Australia, and you're consistently getting polls telling you for months, you know, this has been going on for months, you know, telling you you're pretty much a shoe in you know, you're definitely going to win this. It has to affect the way in which you campaign. You know, maybe you didn't take a few risks that you might have taken. Maybe you played it safer than you would have done otherwise. You know, it, so it's, it's not that the polls are simply reflecting reality. They're also shaping the reality of the campaign. And, and I think this is where the distortion comes in. Um, and, you know, there, there, there is a, a real need for, you know, I, I think you're quite right to highlight this as an international question, you know. Um, and there really is a need to rethink. And I, I think what Harry said is absolutely right, you know, that there was, a, there was a whole model set up by Gallup. You know, it really started in the States. That's where it came from. And you know, pretty much everybody in the States would now admit that that's over. You know, it just doesn't work anymore. Um, even things like telephone polling, you know, which 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 still done, doesn't work anymore because it's it's all based on landlines. You know, vast numbers of people don't have landlines anymore. You know, uh, who's going to answer their phone? Um, you know, so you, you you get all sorts of biases um, coming in, and the, the whole business really needs to be fundamentally rethought. Uh, and remember. With, with things like exit polls, you know, again, what Jennifer was saying about, you know, so the, the, the questions that are being asked, not just how did you vote, but why did you vote? And that, again, of course, is also going to shape a political narrative, you know. So, sure. so we're all going to be commenting on saying, well, the exit polls showed that, you know, so many people were concerned about X or Y. Yes. Well, perhaps they do, but 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 how much is and that And can we trust that? Reality? And particularly when it comes to something, and, you know, yeah. we've debated a little bit, and no doubt we'll be debating it more in the studio over the next months and years, is the, you know, the, the really thorny issues of how you might deal with climate change. And Absolutely. there is a tendency, and we've seen it with our mainstream political parties, just to kind of, you know, be all motherhood and apple pie about it. And of course, we're enthusiastic about it. But that masks a much more ambiguous position underneath that. And that might well be true of the electorate as well, Harry. Uh, absolutely. I remember we, did, we, were, we were doing, when we were researching our politics digest here, I did, we did a, a survey of our readers and those who are interested in politics. And we were thrilled to see that they're all very serious, highbrow readers who are interested in politics and they, the sweeping of nations and environment and all these big issues. And uh, one of my colleagues pointed out to me, look, these guys are mostly interested in, in man-bite-dog stories, but they're answering like that because they feel they ought to answer mm. like that. And so it's trying to measure uh, human uh, thoughts, uh, human opinion, 
it, it's a very difficult thing and it's very inexact and it's described as a science. I think it's more of an art than, than, than a science and more often than not, uh, we get it wrong. The one thing I would say in defence of our own polling company, Ipsos MRBI, especially in the context of general elections, is that they have tended to be uh, quite accurate and very accurate when it comes to exit polls. And it's, it's really, I think, because of the mindset that people have approaching general elections, I think they approach it far more seriously. For example, Paddy Logue, one of our colleagues here, was telling me that the, the digital traffic in advance of European and local elections is kind of flat in the run-up. But in the last 24 hours, it's a massive surge as people finally engage with it. But uh, a lot of the time, people are still uh, voting. I'm not trying to disparage their, their intentions, but sometimes they're voting on a whim or something that's a little more than a whim. When it comes to a general election, I think the intention is more serious. So I think the polls reflect that and the polls tend to be more accurate in Ireland in, 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 in the run-up uh, to an election. And of course, you have a singular question uh, in an election. Who do you want to govern the country sure. for the next five years? Who, who do you trust? Sure. So, so people are, are far more accurate in describing that as they as they come out. Although I have to say, I do wonder, Jennifer, I mean, we uh, here at Irish Times, at irishtimes.com had huge traffic over the course of the weekend. There's an appetite for that kind of the sport, the high sport of the of the Irish election count. I think it was our third highest traffic weekend in the in, in the history of the website. And that contrast, as Harry said, with the, you know, with the traffic of the actual campaign itself for most of the campaign. There's a danger there, I think, for media organisations, which is that, you know, if they were to take that at face value uh, from a business point of view they would focus on the horse race even more to the exclusion of the issues or reportage of what's actually happening on the ground Yeah definitely I think there is that kind of danger there it's really interesting to hear that that was the, the third kind of busiest weekend uh, uh, on the website I, Look I, I think people are interested in that what, you, what you're talking about there you know and the thing about a local election is Obviously, it's very different to a general, like Harry said, it's, it's, you know, in a general election, it's quite singular. A lot of people don't make up their mind about what individual candidate they're going to vote for, sometimes until the day. You know, they take out all the leaflets they've been given, they look at them and go, OK, I better go and vote. Who am I going to vote for? It's very, very different in a general election. It's a national issues. Um, you know pretty much how you feel about the parties in question. So they're, they're two completely different beasts and... You know, I'll, as a political nerd, I was obviously all over the coverage all, sure, all weekend. Was, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I think, I, I don't know, I, I just think they're two totally different beasts, the, the, the local and the general. And I wonder, I hope that the general coverage will be the most busiest weekend when we get whenever it happens in the next few weeks and months. Well, well let me ask you then, because as I said, you've been down observing all this at the count. Mm. Last night I was looking at a tweet from uh, the political scientist Theresa Reedy and I'm going to quote it. She says, it's Tuesday night, uh, we voted on Friday and still only six MEPs have been elected. There are serious legal questions have been raised about uh, the count process for the two extra Brexit MEPs and that was a big issue for a while yesterday. Uh, there are spoiled votes in huge con- or a huge concern, which you mentioned. Turnout is significantly down and that's also true. The registers are a mess, she says, and yet we were facing into a general election in months. And really, that's all true, isn't it? And it really shows that we're well behind where we should be in terms of having a proper electoral commission, which people have been calling for for many years now. Yeah, this is a real failure on the on the government's behalf not to have had this full electoral commission in place by now. They've been talking about it for a long time. I know there's work going on behind the scenes, obviously, 
but it's too little too late. I mean, all of those points raised by Theresa really are completely valid. And, you know, she raised the issue about um, the legal uncertainty around those counts. I mean, I was in the RDS and trying to find a way to explain this that wasn't really technical and boring. But basically, you had a situation where it's a four-seater constituency. The fifth person uh, in line, Lynn Boylan, was due to be uh, eliminated. And the question was, do we distribute her votes? Which obviously may change the order of the third and fourth candidate. Why does that matter? That matters because the fourth candidate goes into cold storage. Strange phrase, but that's what it is. Um, and may effectively never take their seat if the UK doesn't leave the EU. So it's, it was important. But in a quote-unquote normal election, that would never be an issue because the they third go, and the fourth yeah. people would both would be, just elected be deemed elected and, it'd be, and it'd be no odds. Yeah. And then, so therefore, we had to go back to the legislation and yeah. everybody seemed totally confused, including the relevant minister. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll get on to that. But, you know, on the night that this happened, which as far as I remember was the night before last, it's all kind of moulding into one long day, <laughs> um, there was a lot of high drama in the RDS Um uh, we weren't expecting the, another count. I think it was the 14th or 15th count to come in for a while. And next of all, we saw loads of people running up to to the podium. And Claire Daly was really angry as she was spitting flames. And she and I understand, I think she was right. She had heard that there was some legal wrangling going on behind the scenes that they just deemed the last two elected. Like I said, that matters, why, why that matters. Um, and she had a point, you know, this election, because of that reason, is very, very different to other ones. And there is a principle of fairness. If it's different, if one person might not get their seat, there there is an aspect of fairness there. But then there was the counter-argument that, well, this is the way it was previously done. So the next day, obviously, we had John Paul Phelan going on Morning Ireland saying one thing and then going on Sean O'Rourke and saying another. I mean, for the love of God, get on top of your brief. This is really important stuff. Um, so there was a and lot. That's of exactly co- what an electoral commission should have been there to exactly. there to clarify this they issue in advance guidance. and to adjudicate on it ready. should there be a dispute. Yeah, and you know, I think there's been a. I just think it's been very poorly handled, and I think that's definitely one of the things electoral commission should look at. The question is: Is it going to be ready in time for a general election? Absolutely not. Finton. Our electoral system seems to be a bit of a shambles. There have been problems with the register for many years and you know yeah. some of them have been fixed but many many of them haven't. I was talking to, to Damien Cullen who actually ran our count measurement over the course of the weekend and he was talking about at home in Thurless. Um, there were three counting stations, he said, within there were three polling stations on Friday open uh, in schools. All of the schools therefore were closed within walking distance of each other. He said you could have got by perfectly fine with one. Then you had a bizarre process where ballot papers were collected, were centralised to one point and then were divvied out again and ferried out to another point which obviously had, one presumes, some significant impact on how long it took to do the bloody thing and why is it structured that way? The answer is because it's always done this way. Uh, There's a lot of people probably making a few extra bob out of it but it really doesn't seem like any way to run a modern election. Yeah, I mean it really isn't, you know, one of the things, one of the many things that makes me feel my age, you know, are the words electoral commission because I mean as long as I've been in journalism, which you know, is, is, is 150 years or whatever it is, you know, that the, the, the issue of an electoral commission has, has been, not just been on the agenda, but pretty much agreed by everybody. You know, it, it's, it's bizarre and inexplicable and outrageous that, that nothing's been done about it. There hasn't been a single argument put forward in all the time that I've been covering these things of anybody saying, no, that's a bad idea to have an independent, professional, permanent electoral commission which is there on behalf of the public to ensure the integrity and fairness of our electoral system. You know, uh, it's been over and over and over again we've had this kind of recommendation coming up. And as Jennifer said, almost certainly by the time of the next general election, we simply won't even, we, won't, we still won't have it. Um, and, and this inertia, you know, is... Who is, benefits is, from that? Well, 
I think exactly as you say. I mean, and, and this is not to, to, to diminish or, or disrespect the huge commitment of a huge number of the public servants and people who get involved in running the elections. And, but, but, you know, it, it is also a bit of a, a, a kind of a sinecure for some people. Um, it, it's also kind of a status thing that, you know, people are involved in it. Uh, and it's kind of handed on mysteriously, you know, as to who, who actually gets into these positions. And again, this is not saying that there's, you know, the vast majority of people who are doing it are, are doing it in a, in a highly public uh, spirited and, 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 and decent way. But there, it's, 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 I suppose it's just typical of that kind of inertia. It's, it's like um, a club of people who do this thing. And they do it the next time because they did it the last time. And the polling station is there because if it wasn't in that um, national school as opposed to the one like, half a mile down the road, you know, people would, would, would be upset about it. Uh, you know, and it really just needs... Now, now to be fair, right, like, the, the other side of this has to be said, that we have an incredibly old-fashioned analogue electoral system. And that's a good thing, right? You know, that, that actually... You know, we, we had all the fiasco of the the, the the voting machines and electronic voting. And quite rightly, when people looked at that, they said, oh, hold on a minute here, you know. And actually, you know what, the, the Irish public was, if you look at it now, was very prescient about the voting machines. You know, right. if, if you look at all stuff we've learned since about how easy it is to interfere with that. And, and there was a number of com- computer scientists, actually, who did a really good job for the public in saying, hold on a minute, like, here are the vulnerabilities in the system. Mm. And I think most of us then realised... You remember, I mean, Noel Dempsey, you know, old paper and pencil, you know, it was, that how, it was almost like it was a disgrace to us, you know, as a nation to still have paper and pencil. I'm really glad we still have paper and pencil. Yeah. And if the cost of that is that it takes a couple of extra days to count the votes, no, I but that's think, separate. I, I, think, I love, I, I, uh, I love uh, and yeah. believe in the paper yeah. and pencil thing yeah. as well. And I think it for all the reasons that you've said, but that doesn't excuse all the no, other no, inefficiencies no, no. around it. Absolutely not. But I'm, I'm simply saying that there, there's, we have to disaggregate, I think. You know, w- one bit of this is, is old-fashioned and ritualistic and the tallies and all this stuff. It's actually a very good system. And, and we need to hold on to it. The running of elections and deciding, you know, but the, the register, for example, you know, has, has again... People have been talking about this for decades. You know, it's an open issue that it's a disgrace and it's 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 shambolic. There are people on the register who should not be on the register. People not on the register who should be. Uh, there's huge confusion all the time about uh, about where people are supposed to vote, uh, and you know, probably a lot of of stuff that any independent organisation would sort out very very quickly. Yeah, Harry, what do you think? Well, I mean, the latest state of play in relation to the Electoral Commission is that at Christmas time, they again uh, sent um, out proposals to public consultation. I think that must have been about the seventh or eighth time that they've done that over the years uh, with with a, a return date for March. And I think there weren't a huge amount of submissions. SIPO, the Standards and Public Office Commission, probably submitted the most comprehensive um, um, uh, submission and essentially, they're looking at three models at the moment, one of which is non-statutory, which would be ridiculous, and then two statutory ones, one with very limited powers, but with a kind of an incremental kind of build-up of powers, and then one with fully-fledged uh, powers, which I, I would personally uh, agree with. And the, 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 the problem is that, just the, the, uh, as Finton said, it, there's an inertia. There's a reluctance on government to press ahead with it for some reason. It's the same with the Judicial uh, uh, commission that I've, that we've been reading about for for over twenty years since uh, since the controversy surrounding uh, the Supreme Court Judge Hugh O'Flaherty, and that that's when it was first mentioned, and 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 it has taken you know over twenty years uh, for that to reach uh, uh, the the end game. So just the system itself is extraordinary. I remember reading a short story by Mervyn Wall years ago about a guy who who rocked into uh, into uh, one of the civil service departments looking for. Uh, 
a job and they put him into a room and he stayed in the room all week and he got a pay packet on Friday and he ended up going in there for the rest of his career getting it. It was a kind of a slight parody or satire on the civil service, but it was a kind of a, a message showing the kind of the, the system and the, 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 the way in which they do things and it's unchanging and it keeps on going and there's always a kind of a reluctance to change or a suspicion of change. And I think that that's one of the things what, what, that's pertinent for the Electrical Commission. Just in relation to the, um, to the vote and the way in which the vote was conducted, uh, that was very interesting. It was 1997. Uh, uh, there's a 1997 Act in relation to the European elections. And it's basically the same one as the Dáil. And essentially, in, in a three-seater constituency, a four-seater constituency, if there are two candidates left and then one candidate beneath them, but there's no hope that they, one candidate, not, they have no votes to get from anywhere, they're deemed elected. Uh, but what they did for this one is that instead of treating Dublin as a four-seater, they essentially treated Dublin as a three-seater. And uh, um, it, the, 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 the law that was introduced in March of this year was quite clear about that. And the confusion all uh, lay in, in the mind of John Paul Phelan, the Minister of State, who went on Morning Ireland mm-hmm. and contradicted the statement he himself made in the Shannon and in the yeah. Dáil on the 6th of March. You know, well, t- you talk about a brain to freeze. Remember what he said. <laughs> I mean, three months come on, ago, a couple of months ago. Yeah. I love yeah, the no. way he said. You know, I did what I always do. I doubt myself. I just, I doubt that in and of itself. While, while we're kicking John Paul Feeling, can, can, can I just? He actually made another point, which I thought was interesting, because I know when I went into my booth in uh, in Dublin to cast my vote, I know particularly. Uh, I can tell you that in the European election, I was very keen to make sure that there was somebody right at the bottom. So I was going to use all my numbers on on that vote, and there was, however many there were of them, it would have been easy to get confused used along the way and to find oh you know oh god I'm not left with the right numbers at the end and it is confusing and John Paul Phelan to be fair to him made a point which I think is at least worthy of discussion which is should we raise the bar a little higher not necessarily a a financial bar because there are obviously issues of democracy with that but perhaps you know that you get a certain number of signatories before you're able to stand because it is very unwieldy and it does contribute to the unwieldiness Yeah but like you know sometimes you just have to accept messiness you know I I mean (laughs) sometimes it's an electoral process it's a democracy you know, everybody should be able, so long as they meet the very minimal requirements. I mean, everybody should be able to stand for for for, for election, whether it's local elections or European elections. You know, and and yes, it was ridiculous. And you you know, you had this this uh, it was like the Dead Sea Scrolls. You yeah. know, uh, in in more ways than one, perhaps. Um, they, they need to make the boots bigger. Uh, uh, in order to, I mean, you know, I, the, the little wooden shelf. I, is I really always do what you do. I mean, I always go all the way down, and I just I something in me died, and I just couldn't <laughs> I couldn't get beyond seven. I just could for simply because I didn't you know. I, I couldn't, think, you know, some of the independent candidates. I just didn't know them from one, one another, and it would have been entirely random. Um, uh, yeah, and, and of course, bits of this look ridiculous, and even the physical business, you know, for the counters of trying to kind of grapple with this stuff. But you know, let, let's let's not go too far with the thing. I mean, you, you know, it's it is messy. I, I, I wonder will the electronic voting uh, issue be be revisited? It was two thousand and four. I mean, technology has moved a lot since then, and I'm not. I'm. I'm not. I'm not. I, I don't know. Moved a lot I like, in some I like, ways. As as says, technology <laughs> has moved a lot in the direction of people having less faith in these. Absolutely, perhaps, absolutely. Perhaps. Perhaps. <clears throat> but I. I. I mean, I. I love the old system, and I love the theatre of the old system, and the suspense and the spectacle of it. And I think it's a very good way of democracy to show its face, as it were. But I. I. I think that at some stage it might be revisited. I think that there are those who are 
much younger than I am who might have a different disposition in relation to electronic voting and wouldn't have the same issues or the same grow for the system that that I have. So I I, I think that at some stage it could be revisited. I can't see any political party right now proposing in their next manifesto, let's bring in e-voting machines. It worked so well the last time. For for those who are voting for the first time, I mean, they won't even remember that, you know, uh, and they might wonder, why don't we have electronic voting? I did a a history of Ireland in 100 objects and I was almost tempted to put in an (laughs) e-voting machine, you know, (laughs) as a sort of, you know, like something from outer space that was just kind of, you know, what is this object? Can anybody, you know, in a hundred years time, like, you know, you can imagine archaeologists coming across and saying some sort of sacred object they had. Yeah, yeah. Doing diagrams. We should move on and consider what the actual results, you know, really mean. Again, you were down in the count centre. The thing that, again, the exit poll perhaps didn't reveal as starkly as the final result did, particularly in the locals, but also in the Europeans, was the serious damage done to the Sinn Féin vote and the fact that actually, I think their, their loss in seats was even worse than their loss in vote. Their, their, their vote declined by a substantial margin, but they lost nearly half their council seats and it looks as if they have cert- they've certainly lost one, quite possibly two of their three European seats. So what was the mood among them? And then on the other side, the people who did well, albeit not quite as well as expected in the case of the Greens, but the Social Democrats who did quite well in Dublin, I think it's fair to say, and Labour, I thought, had a mixed bag. So between all those parties, the ones outside the two big ones, what was the general vibe? If I was to re- recall seeing the various Sinn Féin candidates and representatives, a real gloomy air of resignation and almost depression. They were absolutely, you could see that they were devastated. Mary Lou, even in her attitude, she was hoarse. Um, she was very downbeat, very unlike her. You know, she's she's always kind of a person to, to put on the fighting face. And she didn't even try to do that. In fairness to her, I think she absolutely faced up to the reality of the situation, didn't try to gloss over and didn't try to put any kind of PR spin on it, which is refreshing in and of itself. So, you know, you can and you can imagine how they felt and they didn't try to hide it. Labour Labour were interesting in that they Brendan Howland was really putting out the line that we're increasing our councillors by 25%. But when I talked to them behind the scenes, different people in the party, they were not happy. They were talking about Brendan Howland's leadership and... You know, those questions were being addressed. And when I asked him about, you know, are people talking to you about this? He kind of got a bit angry at the doorstep. He's like, I just told you we're going to go up in 20. You know, how is that not a good result? But their their, their overall vote went down and they had a terrible, uh, that was on a terrible result in 2014. Yeah, now a lot, a a couple of councillors did leave after the last election. So they were coming from that kind of base. But so there are real rumblings in the Labour camp, much as they say publicly that there aren't. Sock Dams are delighted. They really are. They had a target of 20 and I think they have 19. They're they're happy with that and they think it augurs well for, for a general election. Um, we saw a recount there, I think it was Bantry, where one of their candidates uh, crossed the line with one one vote to, to spare. Um, and then, you know, people before profit, similar to Sinn Féin, kind of, you know, the post-mortem will start now and they have to ask themselves why they're below all of these other parties. You know, is it that the this, you know, protest kind of style of politics doesn't work anymore? People aren't interested. And the other thing I'd say about Sinn Féin, so they went from, they've lost 78 seats, a lot of them in working class areas, but plenty of other areas around the country. I'll give you an example of Cork County Council went from 10 seats to one. That is like devastating for the party. Um, and if you're going to ask yourself why, I think there's a couple of things. If the green vote is an indication of the way people are feeling, that they really genuinely care about the environment, and this is a real thing, as opposed to a protest vote, Sinn Féin were against the carbon tax. And, you know, if you go back to the Citizen Assembly, I think 80% of people were in favour of some form of tax. And we've seen before that the Citizen Assembly has been ahead of politics. We saw it with the referendum and the Eighth Amendment. 
this could be the case again. So if it is a genuine truth that people care about the environment as much as it's reflected in the Green vote, that has to have hurt Sinn Féin. It's also true of solidarity and people before profit were Absolute, also both against the Absolutely. So maybe that's not working. The other thing is low turnout in area, working class areas. Mm. That's very, not going to help the party. Turnout. The yeah. other thing is the ain't two party how many of the Sinn Féin votes to take. And then, of course, you have the squeeze on the left, the fact that the Greens did so well in and of itself will take votes away. So they're being hit, potentially, on all sides. Vinton, uh, the last two of your columns that I've read, the one that, that you published before the election... Well, you said that I've read. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 <laughs> that was that, like six that, months that, ago. No, that was the, there was the one in 2015. <laughs> and uh, No, no, actually, there was one last yeah. week, which was before, before the election, which was really arguing for, in favour of, the parties which we've just mentioned here, I think Greens, Social Democrats, Labour, in terms of their commit- commitment to perhaps what might finally emerge in Ireland as some form of Irish version of the Green New Deal. Um, and uh, and then your more recent column where you say that the, the tide has gone out I, to some extent on the politics of protests around the water charges. Yeah. So what do, are these, are, is the kind of the Green Labour sock Dems axis Taking in mind the kind of the some of the perhaps some of the internal party issues which Jennifer mentions, is that is that the new kingmaker in the potentially in the in the next general election and afterwards? Um, I suppose that the problem really is the, the framing of it as kingmaker because it implies that somebody else is king, right? And 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 this is the problem, of course, of the left in general in Ireland, right? Which is, I mean. It's Ireland's still one of the very few, you know, European countries in which the, uh, you know, the question for the left is which right wing party are you going to put into power, you know, um, and you know if you stand back from this, and I was trying to kind of do this a little bit in, in, in what I was writing yesterday, but you know, one of the things we were we thought we might be looking at, or I did anyway, you know, is uh, you know the the, the two thousand and eight effects, the, the the shock to the Irish system of the banking collapse might have been wearing off politically, and that you might be moving back to what was always the norm of Irish politics since the foundation of the state, which is dominated by Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, or, you know, Cumann Gael, whatever they were. Um, that's sort of the, the, the twin peaks of that monolith, you know. Remember, for a lot of elections, I mean, going back to the 80s, I mean, you had over 80% of people voting for Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, I mean, essentially identical centre-right parties. Um, and that was shattered, really, in 2008 and, the, you know, the 2011 election, which, which reflected that. Um, polls, and this is what we were talking about, polls, polls seem to suggest that we might be kind of moving back in that direction, not to the 80% that we're going to get back there, but maybe 60 to 60 plus, plus 60 you know. Plus, yeah. and, and what's very interesting in, in, in these elections is that, no, actually, the, the pattern set from 2011, which is the kind of 50-50 pattern that there's, the, the the old monolith is now half the electorate, which is still huge, of course. And the other 50% really is the interesting bit, in a, in a way, right, which is um, what happens with that 50%. So you've had this kind of weird thing that, that, that you have a continuity from 2011 in that Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, more or less confined to half the electorate. But the other half has been, so, you, you know, the first half is kind of in the doldrums and the second half is in these kind of very stormy seas, you know, utterly unpredictable shifting around. Um, you know, so we, we've now successively really since 2011, we, we've seen huge trouble for the, the two parties who've occupied the centre of that oppositional force, Labour collapsing pretty much and not recovering to any really great extent in these elections. 
and how shockingly Sinn Féin, you know, which, which looked like the kind of inevitable successor to that. And indeed, in some ways, looked like a kind of a more viable successor. I mean, you know, depending on what you think about Sinn Féin, that's not the question. But if you, you know, in terms of occupying that space with all the energy coming from the north, with, you know, all those big existential issues about United Ireland behind it, all those kind of things, you would think, OK, well, they're they're at the very least stable and probably kind of inevitably growing. And this this is, you know, I think what Jennifer's saying about the, the shock for them, you know, this is a really profound kicking they've got. Um, so so what it shows is that that, that space is, is at the moment uh, very exciting, um, very dramatic and utterly impotent politically, right? except at the European level. Right? So to me, it's very important that we will have at least one Green MEP, that we'll have some voice. I mean, Ireland's record in the European Parliament as well as domestically, has been absolutely shocking in terms of le- you know, voting on, on climate legislation. And that was why I was writing about that last week, you know, that, that this is the one issue on which it's a national disgrace for us. Uh, so it's, it's really good that we will have different kinds of voices there. But if you look at what that left space now is, right, you've got Claire Daly and Mick Wallace probably having two MEPs, you know, independence for change. Uh, you have Sinn Féin in that space still. You have Labour, you have the Social Democrats, and you, you have a resurgent Green Party. So it's it's now very, very fragmented. Incoherent, one might uh, say. One might indeed say incoherent, and, and quite reasonably. And so th- the question is, um, if you're in that space, what do you do? I mean, the logical thing in that space is to say, well, let's let's... Let's force Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil finally to coalesce. You know, if, if that's the 50% and that's what 50% of people want, so it's slightly over 50% probably in a general election, let them at it. Uh, and, and, and try to see whether some kind of uh, new left-wing alliance can emerge. Now, if it's going to emerge, there's two really interesting things. Um, one is, if you stand back from it, like... This should have been a great election for Sinn Féin. Why? Because the big existential issues of United Ireland have not been on the agenda in the South to the degree that they are now for decades. So their big USP, you know, we are the United Ireland party, you would think, okay, great, you know, Brexit, 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 th- this is going to be really good for you. It's had the opposite effect, actually, which is, like, one of the things this is showing is that, yes, there's absolute core Sinn Féin vote, which is, which is nationalist and United Ireland and all that. And a lot of its vote it was a borrowed protest vote. And it's, it's, it's evaporated. Why? Because as Jennifer said, well, the people just didn't turn out. They weren't motivated to turn out. And Sinn Féin can reasonably say, maybe in a general election, some more of them might, but maybe not. Maybe what motivated those people to turn out were the water charges. You know, it was the, the movement that was going on there. And in a way, they're victims of their own success. And what, what supports that analysis is that, of course, the same things happen to people before profit, solidarity, who were the other force in all of that, particularly in, 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 in the big cities and in those working class areas. So the politics of protest, I always argued that the water charges, you know, it'd be a very effective short-term campaign. It would not build any kind of sustainable left-wing alternative. You can't build a left-wing alternative saying we're against property taxes, we're against water charges, we're against carbon taxes, we're against taxation. You know, (laughs) taxation is absolutely at the core and and fair taxation, of course, and redistribution is at the core of any kind of left-wing proposition. And if all you're saying is we're against tax, you, you just simply won't build anything sustainable on the basis of that. And, and of I course, Sinn Féin were happening. forced into the water charges position because of pressure on their left from um, yeah. from uh, people for profit. And yeah, and, and, absolutely, and they, they knew this. I mean, they, they absolutely they knew themselves that that this was you know a, a kind of dodgy in in many ways. It was complicated, of course, by the fact that Irish water was a fiasco and that there were all sorts of very good reasons for for opposing it, and there were the whole privatisation question. So the, you know, it, it, of course, it was complicated, but. 
the reality is that that what's what's dried up from the the, the austerity period, right, is the politics of protest. And what you're left with then is how can you build a sustainable alternative? So if the question is, okay, well, you know, the Greens and 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 Labour and the so- Social Democrats are going to become kingmakers, there's, there, there's no king to come out of this for them. You know, I mean, all that can come out of it for them really is is yet more of the same. And remember, it, you know, yes, the Greens have done very well. It's taken them a full decade to be forgiven by the Irish people, and Labour has still not been forgiven. You know, the only lesson is that small left parties going into government, they destroy the very agenda okay, that they want to perform. I, I, because I they, accept that. They're I gone for a decade. I, I, I accept that that's right. a long-standing argument and a critique of the policy of successive Labour leaders in particular and, and of other parties and indeed of the Greens. But on the, other, the counter-argument to that is that if you accept the fact that we have a half a generation in which to essentially save the, the futures yeah. of, our, of our children and our families. And if you're a Green Party who believe that that's at the core of what you're doing, can you afford to sit in your hands and wait for the, the Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil coalition, which finally ushers in the, 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 the red-green new dawn, which you hope for? Well, it, it's, it's a really valid argument, uh, absolutely valid. And of course, it's valid on not just on the green issues, but on, you know, all the social issues, all the, you know, the, the, the issues of poverty, the issues of, of, of inequality. Um, but you have to decide at some stage that if if you really believe that you know taking power is what politics is about, then you have to question. You just have to look at the history of Irish coalitions. You know, does power really devolve on the small parties and coalition? Yes, in some. In the case know, of Progressive Democrats, arguably, it did. Uh, exactly. Anyway. So it's it's very good for the right. But why? Because they were able to push Fianna Fáil further to the right. You know, because Fianna Fáil was this amorphous thing that would go in any direction that you wanted to push it, and they were very effective at doing that. By the way, the Progressive Democrats did it, though. There is a Progressive Democrats model, which they did it through conflict. The Progressive Democrats were every second week threatening to pull out of government. The problem with, with Labour and the Greens in government is they were too nice. You know, they were always in there saying, uh, you know, oh, we're, we're now fully aligned with the Taoiseach and this and that. And they were unable to differentiate themselves. So maybe there is a middle way, which is where you, where you, you, you go into government, but you, you, you are an absolute pain in the butt while you're there. <laughs> Harry, you wanted to come in. Well, folly that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have just uh, two observations to make, and they're both kind of touching what Finton has been saying. The first is in relation to, I was in Loch Ray uh, in the run-up to the election, canvassing with Fianna Fallers, and it was a fantastic day because they were all kind of old-school Fianna Fallers and they had that kind of easy familiarity uh, with people. One of the women there said to me, she said, that in the old days, you know, you'd be going over, you know which house was the Fianna Fall house and which house was the Fianna Gael house. She said, Nowadays, you just don't know it anymore. And there is a, a cohort of the electorate at the moment uh, for which party loyalty is an alien concept. There's a floating vote. And it can go right and it could, could go left. You could argue that Fianna Fáil benefited from, it, benefited from it in 2002, 2007, the Labour Party in 2011, and subsequently maybe perhaps the Greens have borrowed it now. The mistake, the fundamental mistake that parties make is that they think that that vote is a permanent one, that that vote is coming to, to us. And maybe perhaps Sinn Féin has made that, that same mistake. And it's not. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a none of the above uh, vote that will alight with different parties on different issues uh, depending on the circumstances and it is a a a, a very uh, um, identifiable phenomenon in Irish politics and has become more apparent uh, over the past uh, 20 years. It's more urban than rural? It's more urban but it's it's uh, you know rural I mean you go down to rural Ireland nowadays and the, the, the disconnect between I mean you still I was at a funeral in Galway um, uh, in the past week and the, the huge line of people coming out of the, the funeral home. I mean, there's still, there's still differences between rural and, and uh, urban life, but they're not as marked 
are as as dramatic uh, as they were uh, in the past. The second thing that 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 um, my own theory is in relation to people say, well, why don't Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael join together? I believe they've been joined together since the foundation of the state. Each of them depends on besting the other, but making sure that the other isn't bested too much. So they, there's a kind of a mutuality there or a symbiotic relationship where they both rely on one another in a relative way. So, and Pascal Donoghue has been, make, has been making this point consistently in speeches over the past two years, talking about the centre and the centre must hold. And the way that the, 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 the centre has defended itself in Irish politics is that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael ensures that both of them remain strong. And you see, you'll see that at key moments when they will coalesce and come together, Maria, in the national interest, but also, happily enough for both of them, in the interests of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. The apple tax uh, scenario is a very good uh, illustration of that. So we, 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 when people say that the, the two parties should join together, I sometimes think, you know, I mean, they've been joined together in, in a sense since the foundation of the state. Fintan, I, I can't let you go without asking you about Brexit, seeing as you literally wrote the book uh, on on the subject. Uh, we're talking about, you know, an, uh, an interesting election here, a remarkable election in the United Kingdom, the Conservative Party getting the worst result in its history, or at least since the 1830s anyway, I need to check my facts on that. The Labour Party getting trounced in parts of the UK where it used to be entirely dominant. I think it's coming third or fourth in Wales, for example. Uh, the Brexit Party invented six weeks ago and uh, topping the polls, uh, an amazing swing to both the Liberal Democrats and the Greens. This has all been parsed in all kinds of different ways about how much of these votes were, you know, were Remain and how much of them were were hard Brexit. But what impact is going, that going to have on the dynamics of what's going to happen now this summer with the Conservative Party leadership? And then we're going to be back into all this stuff again in September, October. It's huge. I think, you know, uh, I mean, in a way, it's just kind of um, making manifest what we more or less know, which is that, uh, Brexit is a kind of revolution and revolutions themselves, they start with division, but they are, they become even more polarizing, right? So uh, as the dynamic goes on, you know, pe- people really get into kind of tribes and, and the tribal stuff now is, I'm just back from, I was at the Hay Festival um, uh, speaking there, you know, and, and I mean, the Hay Festival is, you know, 99% Remainers, you know, and it's, a, it's tribal now. It's become kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're fleeing from all these horrible people on the outside who, who, who vote Leave. But equally, of course, we can see that the Leave vote, you know, it's, so it's, it's, it's moved. Remember, into 2016, nobody said, even Farage said, we're going to leave with no deal. And nobody was putting this as a proposition. There is no mandate for it, but it's now become the Leave position. So that's become very extreme. And the uh, Remainer position, which, you know, in the immediate aftermath of 2016 was saying, well, let's have a soft Brexit as possible, has now become let's have no Brexit. You know? so, so really the, the, the dynamic here now is it's no Brexit or it's um, Everything else no is deal. off the table. I mean, the, the, the prospects of a deal now, I think, are really, really, really thin. Uh, the very, very likely that if not Boris Johnson, another hard Brexiter is going to be the new prime minister. They're going to, we're going to be back into the sort of ludicrous theatre of them saying, we're going to renegotiate the withdrawal agreements. It doesn't matter how, how often they're told no. The worry for Ireland, I think, is that I think that the, the European dynamic, you know, I, I was talking to a senior French figure uh, over the weekend, you know, and and uh, he, he or she was saying, um, you know, patience is gone. 
Mm. You know, the the now the French have always been a bit uh, in that direction, but you're seeing it coming from Spain. You're seeing seeing it come from Holland. You know, countries which have been much more sympathetic to the Brits are now beginning to say. If they want to go, let them go. We're in a new, a new European cycle. We don't want to have this baggage. You if know, they want to go with no deal. With no deal. Now, you know, and this, remember for us, this is disastrous. This is disastrous in terms of borders, disastrous in terms of the economy. Uh, so the, the task for the Irish government is actually no longer even really to do with the British. It's to do with the Europeans and, and trying to keep talking to the Europeans saying, don't lose patience, keep, keep this going. There is now a reasonable chance that Brexit won't happen. And that Barry Andrews will never get to sit in the as an MEP, you know, that, like that. That the, the dynamic uh, uh, certainly on that side. Remember, there was a majority for uh, hard Remain parties, you know, um, not a majority for them, and but a plurality, if you like. So the biggest hmm. group of voters were for hard Remain, which is essentially second referendum. Uh, Corbyn, Corbyn may be gone. You know, I mean, Corbyn's position is very, very, very weak. Uh, even Corbyn himself now has kind of shifted to a second referendum kind of position saying, yeah, we, we will do a deal, but then it has to be put to the people. Um, w- the, the one possibility we might see, right, which is, is going back, and this has been, it's been put forward for, for months now by two Labour MPs, which is, look, just pass the withdrawal agreement and then put it to the people. And that's a compromise, right? So, so, and it just, it, it reflects a kind of reality, which is the withdrawal agreement has to be done anyway. You know, like, like whatever. But remarkably, it, the withdrawal agreement of all possibilities, probably the most unpopular one is reflected in, in uh, last Friday's vote. You know, uh, you, it's, maybe, maybe it's some gone. of the people who voted Tory were in favour of the withdrawal agreement. There was nobody else there. Almost nobody, you know, and, 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 and you can see why. I mean, because it exposes the thing as just something that doesn't make any sense. You know, it, it, uh, like Boris Johnson... Uh, it'll be interesting if Johnson becomes because remember Boris said I'm sorry I should call him Johnson calling Boris is, is falling into that trap. Johnson said that yeah, it was it would be better to remain in the European Union than to have the withdrawal agreement. Now, given that the withdrawal agreement is not going to be renegotiated and that any exit that's not a no deal has to go through the withdrawal agreement, the obvious logic is to say, well, actually, you know what, we're better off than we are. I, I think about it, the, 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 the argument between um, the withdrawal agreement and, and staying in is an argument between you're, you're, argue, you're, you're, you're going on a, on a stag night, you know, and, and you want to see status quo or status quo tribute bands because the, 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 the outcome for Britain through the withdrawal agreement is a status quo tribute band. You know, you end up with membership of the European Union, but a kind of really crappy second-class membership. Now, maybe status quo is not a great example because I think anybody could probably play status quo. Yeah. But, yeah, but anyway, <laughs> but you, 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 you probably get my, my general drift, right? Which is that, you know, it's, 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 it's increasingly obvious to people that if this is what it looks like, it's not worth it. You know, it's just not worth it. All the heroic stuff around Brexit just disappears when you look at in the mirror and you see this is the withdrawal agreement. So the logic moving towards saying, well, actually, let's be heroic and inflict all this pain on ourselves on the one side for a kind of act of national liberation, which is somehow psychologically satisfying, or let's just not do it. I'm not sure if logic is the us. only element. There are well, yeah, absolutely all kinds of other stuff. Last word on the whole thing, Jen. Given what Finton describes there, that there's going to be another crisis, yet another crisis in, in, in the autumn, does that mean no election 
either before the summer or immediately after the summer? And does that mean that we're going to have by-elections in Dublin Fingal, Dublin Midwest, Cork South Central in February of next year and then a general election? I don't think we're going to have any by-elections. I think we're going to go straight to a general. But okay. um, Simon Harris made a very interesting comment in the order yesterday the day where he said it's all about finding the safe gap where you can have an election over here. And that would indicate to you that while there is a um, leadership contest in the Conservative Party, that that would be the safe time in which to go. So right now, or in the next couple of weeks? Next couple of weeks. The closer you get to October, the more crunchy, the time gets crunchiest of crunchy times in October. So really, it, it almost, I mean, any sensible party would not have an election in September. Obviously, you've got the budget to come, etc., but that's irrelevant to them. They could hold a budget in December or whenever. There's no. But, but, but the issue would be government formation as well after an election. Well, that's you'd have it. no you, effective government. If you in, go uh, on, the, on the current time. figures, what you're going to come back with is probably something very similar, but Fianna Fáil in the driving seat and then them being, you know, the, the what you're talking earlier around Kingmakers, Sock mm. Dems, Greens, etc. And actually, Fianna Fáil have a much better relationship with Labour, with the Sock Dems, and with Greens on a personal level. So anyway, that's irrelevant in, in terms of the effect it has here. You know, but the classic question of who do I call when I call Ireland if the kind of debates which Finton is talking about are happening at the highest levels in Europe yes. at the back end of the summer and in early autumn. I mean, yeah. you don't know who to call or no, it's a caretaker government. Exactly. And the, like, if we're going to a stage which the, the more the time goes on and nothing happens in the UK, nothing changes, and if we're going to have a no-deal Brexit, I can really see why Fianna Fáil would sit on their hands until then and let Fine Gael be the party that did not uh, represent uh, Ireland's interests and did not save us from this economic catastrophe. I mean, how amazing for them would it be to be able to say they said they'd do this on Brexit and they let you down. They're letting you down on housing and they're letting you down on health. I mean, there is a trifecta that the electorate cannot ignore. On that happy thought, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much to Jennifer, to Finton and to Harry. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and to JJ Vernon on the desk. And remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening. 